Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And this is Jill Wine-Banks. And today's Jill's pin is an ERA Now pin because there were hearings today and Allison is giving me a thumbs up and we're <laughs> going to be talking about this. But since the fall of Roe made the case for equal rights amendment more evident than it's ever been, I have been sort of touting it. Um, and it isn't just the loss of reproductive freedom that is a reason why we need the Equal Rights Amendment. We need it because women have never ever had equal rights to those enjoyed by men. And it's something that's long overdue and that every other advanced country already has. And I'm very lucky that today the Senate had hearings about a resolution that could make the difference, could bring us the 28th Amendment to give equal rights to men and women. And that would be wonderful. It's been ratified by 38 states. And um, the time frame that was set for ratification was in a preface, not in the text. So I think it doesn't count that it has expired. And I would argue that even if Congress doesn't pass the resolution we're now considering, President Biden has the authority and the power to make the Equal Rights Amendment, the 28th Amendment, by simply ordering the archivist to publish it and his attorney general to start enforcing it as the law of the land. And we're going to talk about all of this with um, our, our guest today, as well as an ongoing and much continuing problem of sexual assault in the military. And if there's time, we'll also touch on the latest in Jack Smith's investigations of the former president. And our guest today is the amazing Allison Giller, as many of you might know her, Muller, she wrote on Twitter. Allison was a member of the Armed Forces and then worked at the Department of Veterans Affairs as a high-level employee until she was forced out because of her podcast that reported the latest on then special counsel uh, Robert Mueller's investigation. Um, since leaving government, Allison has been a fearless and consistent voice on legal matters, hosting the Mueller She Wrote podcast, Daily Beans podcast, and a new Jack Smith podcast with Andrew McCabe. We are so grateful she's with us today. Allison, it's so great to see you. Thanks so much for joining. It is great to see you too, Victor and Jill. It's, it's always a, a pleasure to be able to speak with you. We are very excited, and I, I am particularly excited and had a chance to just talk to you for a few minutes before we started recording this uh, about the hearings that happened today. Um, the Senate wrapped up a hearing about the Equal Rights Amendment resolution that is pending before it. It's a bipartisan, bicameral resolution. And for those who don't understand what the Equal Rights Amendment is, not just this resolution, but the Equal Rights Amendment, um, can you just explain to our audience what the words are, what it says, why it's so important for women? Yeah, I mean, it's very basic. It's the Equal Rights Amendment, right? It has been, we've been talking about it for 40, 50 years now uh, that uh, we need to uh, codify in the Constitution that, ever, that, that women enjoy the same rights as men. And you and I briefly spoke uh, about some of the, um, frankly, ridiculous and outdated arguments against the Equal Rights Amendment. And I, I remember telling you how some of these, you know, there's the slippery slope 
argument that, well, if we give equal rights to women pretty soon, they're going to, you know, have their own bank accounts and, <laughs> you know, and then where will we be, you know, but a lot of these same tropes. And that reminded me a lot of the arguments that we heard in the Dobbs case that overturned Roe, which you brought up. I mean, just to be just to be having 1970s arguments in 2023 is pretty mind blowing. And then, of course, we talked about, Jill, you and I talked about the, well, we don't need it. Women are clearly equal to men now. Everything's fine. And that reminded me of the 2013 decision by the Supreme Court that gutted the Voting Rights Act, saying we don't need preclearance for these states. There's no more racism here in the United States. Everything's fine. Everyone's equal. Chill out, you know. And these are, it's just, it's very depressing and gutting to listen to modern day human beings make these, have these words come out of their mouths as arguments against giving equal rights to women. It's blew my mind. So I first uh, came out of the Hatch Act uh, after Watergate. And so my first real involvement in campaigning for the Equal Rights Amendment is 1976. So it is almost 50 years ago that I got involved in this. And I am hearing the same ridiculous arguments now that I've heard them. I just want to read some of the language, just particularly for the younger audience that may not have been following this along. Section one, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. That's basically the heart of what the Equal Rights Amendment is. It says what should be obvious that men and women should be treated equally within the Constitution, and yet it hasn't been. It took till 1920 for women to get the right to vote, but we still don't have equal rights. And so to me, it's things like uh, when I was debating what pin to wear, one of my pins says 59 cents. And that's because when I first started campaigning for ERA, that's what every woman earned for every dollar a man earned. 59 cents. We were worth 59 cents to a man's dollar. And we have made progress. It's, it's way above that now, but it's not one-to-one. And as long as it's not one-to-one, we need the Equal Rights Amendment. And um, so have you followed the resolution that was being discussed today? Um, I followed it a little bit. I think you're more well-versed on that uh, particular resolution, but I'm, I'm sort of with you in that just the Constitution and what it takes to get an amendment into the Constitution, it seems like the Republicans or people who are against civil rights, uh, let's, you know, let's put it that way, seem to just be throwing up procedural roadblocks. You need the archive to do this. You need uh, a resolution to do this. You have to do this to, to get it done. And it just seems like adding bureaucratic layers in an attempt to stop women from having equal rights. That's how it feels to me. And so while I'm I'm more focused on what you know what you had brought up earlier, Jill, just the letter of 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 the what that's in the Constitution for what it takes. So it, let's get rid of the OLC memos. Let's you know stop with all of this procedural uh, bullpucky, as uh, Rachel Maddow <laughs> would say, and let's get on with it. Let's get on with the uh, with ratifying the amendment. We've got what 38 states now. 
So on that note, I mean, I, I'm curious, 38 states, which is two thirds, more than two thirds have already signed on to adopting the ERA and under Article 5 of the amendment provision of our Constitution, that's what's needed. So I'm wondering, what is the holdup uh, here and, and what's the problem? Yeah, I think I think that's basically it. I have the same question, Victor. <laughs> like, <what? laughs> well, the answer is that there is an argument being made that a few states have tried to rescind their ratifications. And the other is that Congress had a time deadline set. Originally, when they first proposed this legislation for voting by the states, it said there were seven years in which to pass it. That seven years has expired. It was extended, but even the extension has expired. And three states ratified after the deadline. Uh, the argument answering that is that the deadline was put in a preface, not in the text. And so what was sent to the states to ratify had no deadline in it. And therefore, there should be no deadline enforced because it was just sort of advisory. It wasn't in the actual language of the Constitution. And it is clear from the history of our Constitution and case law that you cannot rescind a ratification vote. So it seems to me that 38 states, the required number, have voted yes, and that the deadline is invalid and that the rescissions are invalid. And therefore, it is under its own terms. It says it takes effect immediately and becomes enforceable two years after the 38th vote, which is now three years ago. So in my mind, the Attorney General of the United States should be enforcing this and protecting women against discrimination. And the arguments that I heard today were just ridiculous. Things like, um, in the original arguments, it was things like, I don't want to share a bathroom with a man. I don't want to have to pay alimony. Well, women now pay alimony and we have unisex bathrooms. And so nothing has happened. Many states, yes, exactly, Allison. I do that again. I love your face. Oh, and um, many states have equal rights amendments and nothing has happened to hurt. The arguments today were we'd have I swear that I can't even say this with a straight face, that the argument is now my daughter will have to play soccer against a team with boys on it and jails could be unisex and there would be men and women in the same jail. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, courts can see differences with distinctions and there may be differences that justify having differential laws, but mm -hmm. most of them don't. But um, I, th I think we have to look at, you know, is there something, do we need congressional action? And based on your experience, uh, uh, Allison, is there any chance that this Congress with a Republican House and a slim majority, certainly not a 60 vote um, in, in the Senate, that there could possibly be Anything passed that favors this? Uh, I would say no, because they're, you know, these are similar arguments to why women shouldn't be in the military. 
Uh, and what it it reminds me of is we recently, uh, I know that um, Joni Ernst and Kirsten Gillibrand recently put forward the Military Justice Improvement Act, and it had 67 co-sponsors, and it still couldn't get passed. In the Senate, 67 in the Senate still couldn't get passed. So if they can't pass a simple rule that says rape in the military is bad, I don't think they're going to come together uh, on 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 this kind of a, a a resolution, uh, to be honest. And, you know, that, that deadline is again, bullpucky. I I don't even, it's arbitrary. It's show me in the federalist papers where it says that deadlines can be set for for adding amendments, for amending the constitution. That's the most ridiculous thing I've heard. (laughs) They did use the argument that it's a good thing that they had that because now things are different and we don't need the Equal Rights Amendment because women are recognized as being equal. Show me that. Show oh, me good. that. Oh, so it's everything's cool now. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, silly us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I, it feels like there's little that this Republican Congress is going to do that's going to help our lives. But if it, if it, oh, can you? Yeah, you for a minute, so start again, Victor. I, well, so Alice, I, mean, I agree with you. There's little that this Republican Congress seems like it will do to help our lives, but I'm wondering what you think President Biden can can do. And it, and I think Jill alluded to this earlier, which is it seems like all President Biden has to do is tell the archives to publish the amendment, and it's a mandatory ministerial act. What do you think he can do, and do you think he can do that? Yeah, just like Vice President Pence had to ministerially open the votes and count them. Uh, and is not a senator. Uh, I think that uh, that Joe Biden can have the archivist publish uh, the amendment and have the attorney general begin enforcing it, just like Jill said. I mean, that's that's all that's required. And we have the ratifications. Our deadlines are were arbitrary. Resolutions are not needed. So I'm I'm 100% with Jill on this one. Uh, just just have the archivist publish it, and let's 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 get it going. I have to say there were two strange developments today simultaneous with this hearing, which was there was a hearing on confirming the new archivist and the decision brought in a case brought by the attorneys general of Illinois and uh, Virginia was decided while the hearing was going on. And unfortunately, it, it it's a very narrow decision. It doesn't reach the merits on the Equal Rights Amendment, but says that the states don't have the um, standing to bring the case. So it basically said they can't bring a mandamus action. So that's one methodology that I was hoping might resolve this that has, at least for now, the Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia has said, no, we're going to affirm the district court, which didn't allow the mandamus action. So it can either go to the full circuit court or it could go to the Supreme Court. But as a question, how, how did they not have standing these states? Uh, because they said that it's not as clearly um, obvious that the uh, archivist has the grounds for doing the publication. And I, the opinion just came out. So I'm only on page, I think, 16 or 18 of a 26-page mm-hmm. opinion. So unfortunately, we had this set for recording now. I will comment more when I finish reading the full opinion. But I can say that it is based on standing 
they do they specifically say in the opening that they are not addressing the merits of whether or not the deadline counts, et cetera. So that's it's not a devastating opinion, but it's just it's so strange that we've been waiting. This case was argued like last September, I think. And it came out on the day of during the hearings. I mean, what's with that? That's Seems like something that the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals would be like all weird about. Um, yeah. I, I, I would be I'm interested to read that um, standing opinion now, because if the states who are ratifying uh, this amendment don't have standing, like who does? Uh, I guess maybe a, an injured party. Uh, but uh, I mean, that's all. Yeah. But, but, you know, and I want to go back to a, a statute that you mentioned um about military sexual assault, but I think Victor has one more question on the ERA before we move to sexual assault in the military. Yeah, I mean, it was just about the politics of, of doing this and what President Biden can do, I guess, in 2024. I'm wondering, do you think that the ERA could be a motivating issue for Democrats? Could this make, I guess, people feel energized and, and united on our side? I think it could. It would also it would depend a lot on who's doing that messaging. And also you might run into, well, why didn't you do it uh, in the last four years you were president? Why are you saying that you'll do it in your next term and why didn't you do it before? Um, But I mean, I I mean, obviously, it's it's an issue that that can be run on if the messaging, I think, is is done correctly. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. But you mentioned that another resolution didn't pass, even though it had 67 sponsors. Can you talk about what that I'm not familiar with what that is, and I'd love to know. Yeah, that's the Military Justice Improvement Act that would have taken the decision as to whether or not to prosecute rape out of the hands of commanders on base and put it into a separate civilian DA type or, or US ASUA type of unit. Uh, where they those experts would determine, because if you're a commander of a base and you have a bunch of military sexual assaults on your base, you are not want to prosecute them because then you get known as the guy or the lady or whoever has who has a bunch of military sexual assaults on in their mm-hmm. command. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was uh, Joni Ernst, who I believe has a daughter at West Point that was experiencing some harassment in the, in, at West Point. Mm-hmm. And of, of course, Kirsten Gillibrand, who since, you know, 2012, when uh, I appeared in the Invisible War and we spoke with her, has been advocating to get that decision out of the chain of command. Sometimes it's the commander who is the assailant. Sometimes it's whoever it has assaulted you is in that chain of command. And so there's a giant conflict of interest there. And there's a, and there's a, a uh, motivation to sweep it under the rug so it doesn't show up on your command that you've had this uh, type of a, a, a crime committed. And they were able to get 67 co-sponsors, 66 co-sponsors, including Kirsten Gillibrand in the Senate. They had a super majority to pass this bill. But for some reason, Democrat Jack Reed from Rhode Island wanted to take it out of billhood and put it in his committee in the NDAA and put it in the NDAA Kirsten Gillibrand and folks like myself were like, no, it'll get watered down. And he's like, no, it won't. Everything will be fine. And lo and behold, it it got watered down. And the decision to prosecute those crimes is still in the hands of the commanders. And so it's, it's 
disappointing on many levels. And I've been asking people who are friends with Chuck Schumer and Jack Reed to explain to me why you took this vote off the floor when you had plenty of votes to pass it. We had a Democratic majority in the House. It will never pass the House now. Um, despite, I mean, they couldn't get anything past this Republican House at this point, nothing that would help voters uh, because, you know, they're there to destroy the government because they hate it. Uh, but, you know, neither here nor there, but that should have been passed. That's a bill that should have been passed and simply wasn't. And now it's, uh, we're not, we're, we've taken some baby steps. They've, they've put the prosecution in a little office within the Pentagon now, but it's still in the chain of command. So I don't. It's so interesting because first of all, I don't know why this is a political issue. It just doesn't seem political to me. Uh, second of all, you may know I was on a committee looking at sexual assault in the military um, during the Obama administration. And my understanding was, well, when our appointment, our jurisdiction was specifically excluded looking at whether we could take this out of the chain of command. That was not a remit to us. Um, but I have to say that in our hearings, what we found was that there was a lot of acquittals because cases were now being prosecuted that were really weak. And the reason was that commanders had come to realize that they would suffer more for ever saying no to a prosecution and that that would be held against them. So they were authorizing prosecution of cases where the staff judge advocate would say, this is a losing case. This is a he said, she said, there is no other external evidence. This should not be prosecuted. Um, and so it's, I have this sort of, I'm torn between saying, yes, I clearly see the conflict of interest. And you are right. The commanders are held responsible for having too many sexual assaults in their unit um, and for not controlling their troops. But I then saw this other thing where I saw the acquittal rates skyrocketing because commanders were in fact saying, I'm not saying no. Oh yeah. You, yes. There's a complaint. We're going to prosecute it. Yeah, so, and the commander is not uh, well-versed in the law and shouldn't be making that decision at all. Now, if right. you've got you know, Jags or CIS or uh, actual attorneys in a, in a, whether it's civilian or at the Pentagon, like making those decisions and making them properly with a legal background and an understanding, then that also alleviates the problem that you're talking about, which yeah. is, well, just prosecute them all, you know, yeah. um, without understanding what kind of evidence needs to be had to obtain and maintain a conviction upon appeal and, you know, everything that a prosecutor you know, considers during that prosecutorial discretion uh, and evidence gathering uh, part of their part of their job. And, and didn't um, Secretary Austin and the the newly appointed committee to look at sexual assault recommend taking it out of the chain of command? Uh, I believe they did it first, but then they sort of changed their wording a little bit. Um, I would have to go back and look at that to be sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but I know that. <clears throat> that they continue to get a lot of pushback from the commanders um, and the, you know, the folks in the military, the, the people on the ground, they want to retain control over that, whether they're 
telling them to prosecute or not, they really are reluctant and have been for over a decade to give up that. So you wrote this really um, gut-wrenching piece in the Washington Post right before the fall of Roe about your story. I know so many people thank you for doing so about your experience in the military. Um, And you mentioned this really just startling statistic, which is um, in 2018, the Department of Defense reported that 20,500 service members experienced um, a similar um, situation, which is up more than 14,000 from two years ago. I'm wondering why isn't this getting any better? And um, also more specifically, do men uh, undergo sexual assault training in the military? And if they are, how can it be improved? Because it clearly doesn't seem to be working very well. Well, the remedy uh, uh, back in 2012, uh, instead of taking it out of the hands of the commanders, the remedy was the SARP programs, the sexual assault and rape prevention programs, which are absolutely ridiculous and have shown through the numbers that there is zero improvement, which is why they were able to get 67 people to sign on to this bill. We, we've been trying for a decade and we haven't been able to improve the numbers. And some of their programs were, you know, uh, hey, take a buddy with you, the buddy system, or uh, one of their ad campaigns was ask her when she's sober. Uh, So just absolutely ridiculous, like victim blaming stuff that didn't work, shocker. Uh, But the the government likes to try things and fail a bunch of times before anything actually gets done. Uh, And that's just, they're very reactionary instead of proactive. Uh, But I'm very, very happy um, to say that, you know, in that op-ed, I said that the Pentagon post-Roe really needs to make sure that they approve leave travel for uh, people who have either experienced sexual assault or have become and become pregnant or just become pregnant and want to seek abortion care, but are stationed in states that have banned abortion. You don't get to choose. I mean, sometimes you do, but you generally don't get to choose where you're stationed. And I said, the first thing we have to do is approve the leave and make it a no questions asked thing that you, you, you need leave, you get leave. And I'm very happy to report that um, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has implemented that policy and no questions asked travel leave for medical purposes. And <clears throat> I'm that's like one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life and um, is to help influence that policy. And uh, because I just think of how many people's lives are gonna be saved um, because they don't have to worry and be afraid to ask for leave to travel for that kind of care. So we find our workarounds as we do uh, in these bureaucracies, um, but I, I'm still, I still have faith that our legislators are going to um, keep pushing to make sure that this um, that this problem gets attention at the source. We need to stop the sexual assaults, not figure out how to sort out the problems caused by them. So, congratulations, Allison, on getting that through. That is a very big deal, and you should be very very proud and happy about that outcome. So congratulations. It's uh, You mentioned that you think that the sexual assault training um, isn't working. And pretty much when I was on the committee and we had hearings, it was pretty clear it wasn't working and that it, it had gotten to be so repetitive that people were just tuning out, um, which can be a problem with overtraining. But do you have any specific suggestions that the military might consider in 
what would be effective training. Uh, they were focusing a lot on consent and, you know, having everybody understand what consent means and what state of mind you have to be in. You, you know, you sort of jokingly said, you know, ask when she's sober. Um, and that certainly is true that a person with a certain blood alcohol content is just deemed not to be able to consent. You cannot have informed consent when you are completely intoxicated. Um, but, but what would work? Um, and I want to mention one other aspect of this, which is something that I mistakenly thought, which was in talking to people at the service academies. And my impression is that if you get into West Point or the Air Force Academy or the Naval Academy, you are top of your class. You have extracurricular activities galore. You come from a great family. You have some political connections because you do have to have a recommendation. And so I was shocked to learn that one of the things they had added to the curriculum was relationships because the students really did not understand not only consent, they didn't even understand what a real healthy relationship was and that they were trying to develop training in that, which I, I mean, I, I don't know how you even go about that, but I'm wondering, because you really thought about this a lot, if you have some suggestions. Well, I think that, um, uh, to be honest, I am the wrong person to ask what these curriculums should include because I am Gen X. And for me, uh, and shout out to Victor, um, Gen Z has a much better grasp and understanding of consent and bodily autonomy. And I think they should be the ones shaping this curriculum. And I, I, you know, I have a lot of hope and faith that, you know, well, how do we solve this problem? I think it will eventually solve itself because we're going to age out and it's going to be Gen Z uh, that's going to be uh, taking over these spots. And I have found that young people, particularly post Me Too, and um, especially with uh, gender fluidity the way that it is and understanding bodily autonomy and consent, I feel like young people have a much better grasp on this than, than, than I do. I mean, I know a lot about bodily autonomy and consent, but uh, that's who I would be asking. I would be putting together a commission of, of young people, maybe put Max Frost in charge of it and say, figure out a way that we can train uh, the old dogs uh, in the military to understand what these concepts mean in, in a way that is generationally uh, more well understood uh, by, by young people today. And I have to hand it to um, especially so many young women that I've met talking at the college circuit um, and post Me Too, where they are very certain. I I was convinced that uh, the whole sexual assault was my fault and I did something wrong. And I had a hard time drawing boundaries uh, at that age. And, and I had a hard time talking about it. And I don't see that at all in, in, this, in this upcoming generation. And I'm very hopeful because of that. You know, it, it's so interesting that you mentioned that because even on the college level, um, one of the things that everyone has to go through are these sexual assault trainings. And, and I was talking with a friend about it and we were wondering like who makes these trainings because they don't speak to our generation. And, and a lot of people, the tendency is just to kind of move right past it. And it's like, one of the things I was talking about with um, someone I know is, you know, even the idea of consent now, I mean, 
that's kind of we view as the floor and the ceiling when it should just really be the floor. And it's like, I think a lot of these training just kind of view consent as something that you, you should understand. And that's kind of the end of the, the story. But that's just not the case. And I think it gives young people a kind of a false sense of, of what it's like. And I, I, I agree with you that, you know, hopefully we can get Maxwell Frost and other young people to, to form these trainings, because I think they can really understand and kind of speak to um, what young people actually kind of seek with these trainings. So I, I completely agree with you. But I do want to switch um, to uh, a podcast that you co-host now with Andrew McCabe called Jack's or called Jack Smith, I believe, right? Or um, what is it, Jack? Jack. Jack. It's just called Jack. Okay, so it's Jack, and it focuses on Jack Smith's investigations. Um, so I'm wondering, can you give us an update on what is publicly available on the Jack Smith front um, so far? I think what I'm noticing is that, uh, at least with the latest round of subpoenas from Jack Smith, and I think, Jill, you can attest to that, in this latest round, uh, he started asking about the Save America PAC, the election defense, the election fraud defense fund, which doesn't exist. Um, he started asking about how that money was being spent and uh, how the uh, the election lies were um, amplified and mailed out for donations. And I think what Jack Smith is looking at here is, look, yeah, it could take a really long t- time to get Mike Pence to, you know, give a full accounting of what happened because of all these privileges yeah. that he's uh, trying to invoke. I think I think Pence will eventually lose, but it could take a long time. I think Jack Smith is focusing on wire fraud and money laundering. Uh, it's a 20 year max sentence. It's very, it's much easier to prove than incitation of an insurrection or seditious conspiracy. Uh, and we have a very clear cut case of defrauding donors. And now with, with the Fox documents that we're getting out um, and this Berkeley research firm that briefed Trump and Meadows in December that look, we looked at 12, 15 different things. There's no election fraud. Everybody and their mother, including Bill Barr and Hirschman and Cipollone and Philbin telling him he lost and there's no election fraud. Donahue and Rosen and all everyone, this whole cacophony of people saying there's no election fraud. Um, I think that that's hands down proof that he defrauded donors and should and should face a very simple wire fraud case uh, in in fundraising off of the big lie. And that's just one aspect of like an eight prong conspiracy to overthrow the government. But I think I feel like he's focusing on that. And I think that that's a good place to look. Do you have any predictions on a timeline for action? The sources I've spoken to uh, inside the Department of Justice with regard to Jack Smith are saying he's looking at summer. Um, My my horse in this race has always been Fonnie Willis. I think she's going to be the one to indict first. Uh, but we know now that her regular grand jury gets sworn in on March 7th. Um, so unless she wrapped everything up real quick and there's going to be indictments this week, I think we're maybe looking at more of a maybe a month, month and a half from now on the Fonnie Willis timeline. Uh, but, you know, everybody together can say whether it's Fonnie Willis or the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg or the Department of Justice, Jack Smith, Merrick Garland, it's been over two years. And uh, I I think because we're seeing subpoenas of Meadows and subpoenas of Pence, these are people, and Jill, you said this, that, that get these are people you subpoena at the end, not at the beginning. So I think we're getting close to a resolution on, on a lot of these criminal uh, investigations. Uh, it'll just be now, I think it's just a matter of 
who goes first and when. And I think that uh, whoever goes first is going to open up the floodgates for a lot of others. I, I, it's just my personal. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a, a betting person and I hate predicting something that we're going to know within months anyway. Exactly. But um, that said, I mean, you have to just sort of wind through your head and go, well, there's the New York DA and Stormy Daniels. There's the New York Attorney General and huge civil damages. There is the Fulton County DA and any one of a dozen different crimes that she could ask a grand jury to indict for. Um, and one of the reasons for her delay, even though she had a long time, well, in my mind, a long time ago, weeks ago, had said that indictments were imminent uh, or decisions were imminent, which could have meant a, a declination as much as an indictment, um, is that that little clue in the grand jury report, the special grand jury report that said, we believe that perjury was committed. And so people who were witnesses might now be subjects. And she may be working with them to say, I won't indict you if you tell the truth and cooperate with this investigation. And so that she's postponing action to get the truth from people who appear to have dissembled before the grand jury. Um, that said, she can't wait forever. She's going to have to act at some point um, and has to decide between the broad indictment for this wide-ranging conspiracy to take down the election and to defraud the government, or whether it is a narrow um, charge that, or, or even a RICO charge uh, under Georgia law. So there's a, she has a lot of options. Um, and she also has to deal with the fact that under Georgia law, unlike anything I've ever been part of, the grand jury is told that they can share their experience with the public. And the grand jury foreperson did that. Did you get to see uh, Emily Kors interviews? <laughs> I did. I did. And and it and it having followed federal grand jury procedure for so long, I was like, what's happening? And Judge uh -huh. McBurney uh, put my uh, allayed and assuaged my concern saying, hey, we're a transparency down here. We, we could talk about this. She didn't violate any rules. She did exactly what I told her not. She didn't do what I told her not to do. And um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on this. And I think, I think I understand everybody's kind of frustration with how long this is taking. We've got, we had the five month delay in seating the special purpose grand jury. We've got the delay between the special purpose grand jury and the regular grand jury. We've got the, the perjury thing that she's might be looking at on the DOJ side, Scott Perry slow walked reviewing his own emails and added four months to that whole investigation. We've got Trump trying to get a special master and going through the 11th circuit trying to delay the documents case i mean this kind of obstruction and delay make no mistake is a hundred percent the fault of the people who are being investigated or just sometimes bureaucratic stuff that takes a minute um because you know the government we were joking imminent in the government means weeks and uh soon means four to six months and we're wrapping up means by the end of the fiscal year you know so I think we're seeing a lot of that, but no, yeah, I've, I did see her media tour and I, I noticed she's quiet now. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Certainly. I mean, if you were 
uh, caricatured on Saturday Night Live, it might might encourage you a little bit, I would think. Yeah. So, Allison, you mentioned the Fox News case, and yesterday there was some very interesting um, news about uh, exchanges between Rupert Murdoch, the the board of the parent company of Fox, and how they knew that what was being peddled was a lie, but they still allowed it to happen. Do you feel like this Dominion lawsuit could be the beginning of the end of Fox as we know it? Uh, it depends on what the prayers are for relief are and if they're granted. I, I am hoping. I think there'll they'll be a monetary settlement. I think they'll win. I think they'll be able to prove malice. I don't think they'll do it in a summary judgment. But I and I think it will go to trial. But I think they'll be able to get a settlement. But what I would also like to see, and maybe Jill, you can speak to this because I know that they had to do this with Smartmatic. But Fox should be forced to go on the air and tell everyone that they misled viewers and that there was no election fraud. Uh, and they should be forced to do it on all their primetime shows multiple times over several months. I don't know if it will spell the end for them. I think what more spells the end for Fox News is the super right-wing Trumpists going to OAN and Newsmax and the more centrist people going over to CNN, and Fox is just sort of left holding the, you know, holding the bag there, like, who do we even appeal to now? Um, now that it's out of the bag that Hannity thought Trump was disgusting and, and you know, all, all these other things. But will Fox News viewers learn about this? That is the big question. And I'm, uh, you know, like Rupert Murdoch says, it, it wasn't about the truth. It wasn't about red or blue. It was about green. It was all about money. And it's just up to the Fox viewers as to whether or not they realized that they were completely duped. I agree with you 100 percent on that. Um, I do think I am still optimistic that, and not because 1.6 will be the death knell, 1.6 billion, which is a significant amount of money, even for the number one cable news channel, but because there will be another 1.6 billion if they continue the behavior that led to this judgment. I, I mean, it's hard to believe that they actually wrote these things down and kept them and that we have brilliant evidence of malice and knowledge of the lack of truth of what they were saying. Um, they probably won't be writing emails to each other and text messages in the future, but they have learned that if they allow false information, misinformation, disinformation to be broadcast from their, their platform with the encouragement of their hosts that they're going to be liable. And that means they'll lose their audience. And so if that's true, that puts them out of business, but it means the audience will migrate to someone else who then needs to be sued for the same reason. Um, but, and I love, you know, the idea of having to go on and say, we misled you. These facts were false. Uh, that would certainly also help in something that Victor and I spend a lot of time talking to guests about, and please weigh in, and that is how do you communicate the truth? How do you get people who want to believe what they're hearing to believe what is actual fact? You, you have any clues for us on that? Any advice? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, it's it's it can sometimes make it worse, right? You know, I've, I've read a lot of books and studied a lot of stuff and talked to a lot of people who are called experts. And, and if you tell somebody they're in a cult, they dig their heels in and push back even harder. Uh, 
so I, I do think them coming out and saying, hey, there was no election fraud. We, we said that because we didn't want to upset you. We wanted to tell you what you wanted to hear. I don't know what the statement would look like if they, if they had to make one, but I don't know how that could be crafted in such a way where Fox News viewers across the country would go, oh, dang. Um, uh-oh, I was tricked and be angry at the right people for being tricked. Uh, but I definitely think it would be a deterrent. And I'm also interested, too, to see if this opens up a floodgate of other lawsuits, including maybe Capitol Police officers, uh, the Blazing Game uh, suit, who, who could go after Fox News for uh, helping incite the riot, knowingly uh, putting out false statements that upset the uh, people that day. Some of the one six defendants who say, oh, I got caught up in the moment. I was listening to Fox News. I listened to Donald Trump. If I had to go spend some jail time because I was brainwashed by Fox News, you bet I would probably turn around and sue Fox News for for being culpable uh, for, for sicking me, helping sick me on the Capitol that day. So we'll see. I mean, we'll see how it turns out. It's, you know, we're, we're still trying to figure out if people can civilly sue Donald Trump. The DOJ hasn't yet weighed in on that yet. But you can definitely civil sue civil sue Fox News. So we'll we'll see. Uh, but it's they're going to not have a good day for a long time, and that place yeah, yeah, right here as well. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. This was such a phenomenal conversation. I learned a lot, and I'm sure our audience did too. Thank you so much for all that you do. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you, Victor. Thank you, Jill. Thank you for this amazing show that you put out. I think it's so important that we talk about multi-generational issues and how we dif how different people have different views on things. I think it's just it's such a huge contribution to the to the body politics. So thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. That's so sweet. Thanks. Well, that was an awesome episode and um, you know, I have to go back and watch the ERA hearing, but I did see that there was, um, what gave me some comfort and hope is that there was um, a young person who was testifying today yes. apparently. And so um, hopefully we can get a um, younger generation to really care about this issue. And I know we talked about this briefly. I think the last time we talked about it was with Kate Shaw and she was saying that, you know, we need a younger movement, um, just kind of like climate change and, and gun reform about things like the electoral college, things like the ERA. So. Um, hopefully what's happening right now is list now I think Allison's suggestion that your generation start writing the rules of consent right the rules, rules of consent. Of, yeah yeah you know, what should be in sexual assault training could be and and I, I do want to mention um, the young person who testified as a senior at Trinity College in Connecticut yep and yep. Um, she was amazing. She appeared yeah. on Broadway in the play, What the Constitution Means to Me, which is a play I have oh. recommended, um, which is- Do you believe that that's where the, the same college that Tucker Carlson went to? Just just saying, but two, two very, very different people, but oh, um, what? <laughs> Maybe I, do I have, anyway. is it in Connecticut? I think I have- In Connecticut, right yeah, yeah, Tr Trinity College, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, so she did go to that college, but she was, she was, very well spoken. Very, yeah. She was going to a law firm as a um, paralegal when she graduates in May. Uh, I suspect that she won't be done by being a paralegal, that she will either yeah, go to yeah. law school or she'll enter politics um, just because of her passion and her being able to articulate 
why we need the ERA. Uh, and yeah, it's not yeah. just for reproductive uh, health care. It is for so many other reasons, including sexual assault in the military, including uh, gender pay gap, including a man. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's quite amazing. Um, the one thing that we were going to talk about um, for our chit chat today is this new CDC data. And I, and I have some of the top lines here. Um, last week, the CDC came out with some really disturbing um, new figures. And it shows that the number of teen girls who, quote, felt persistently sad or hopeless increased drastically from 36% in 2011 to 57% in 2021. Teen boys um, also report um, struggles with mental health um, slightly lower. 21% of teen boys um, felt persistently sad or hopeless in 2011 to 29% said the same in 2021 um and i know we're going to have on some conversation uh, have on some psychologists who can help us make sense about this but there was a really interesting piece in the new york times written by um michelle goldberg who i'm sure maybe many of you have read or seen on msnbc i think she's a msnbc contributor about how maybe phones could be the problem uh, of of what we're seeing now jill I'm, I'm wondering what you think of this and i know we've talked a lot about phones and, and some of the harm it can do um, but what do you think about phones and what it can do to mental health? So, it, you know, it's such an interesting thing because, of course, I lived through my college years and law school and beginning of my practice without a computer or a phone. They didn't exist. Yeah, right, right. So I didn't have apps. Um, and when phones first came out for business, they were Blackberries, which didn't have apps. Um, no. And you and I, uh, in some ways, despite the age difference, um, we actually talk to each other on the phone. I mean, you actually call me and say hello, and we talk. We have a <laughs> yeah. um, and so that's, you know, one use of phones. I go to restaurants and I see, a, you know, two people, sometimes man, man and woman, sometimes two of the same sex, sitting at a dinner not talking to each other, both of them holding up their phone and reading their phone. And I'm like, what's the point of being out to dinner with someone if you're not going to have yeah. yeah, You know, one thing to say when you're having a conversation, well, what's the name of that movie that we're talking about? And then you take out your phone and you look it up and you, you can then have a good conversation. That's very different than individually being engaged with your phone and not the other person. Um, but having said that, and I did read Michelle's piece, and I read another piece also in the New York Times, talks about the studies that are 55% say it's because of social media, um, and 12 studies say it isn't. Uh, so it's an overwhelming number, are blaming phones. I think there are plenty of other reasons my people might be depressed today. We are heading toward authoritarian dictatorship. We have a climate crisis. We have a mass shooting crisis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, there are legitimate things to be worried about, and facts no longer matter. In my area, yeah. I felt I had some power, and I had facts and data. So I, I worry about, I, you know, I don't want to jump to the conclusion. Um, in this other article in the New York Times, it did say that there was a psychologist who had some solutions, which were, you know, parents need to be parents and parents need to be responsible. 
And parents need to say, okay, you're 12 years old. You get to have a phone to make phone calls in an emergency. And you're 13, you get to have a phone where you can then text. You're 18, you get to have a phone with all the apps because by now I've trained you how to not be depressed when you see a fake image of either the perfect meal that is set up so beautifully that no one could aspire to create it in their home kitchen, or you see the perfect figure, the perfect makeup, the perfect dress, the perfect whatever. That doesn't exist in real life. You can't aspire right. to that will be depressed. I don't want you to see that until you're old enough yeah. to do that. Um, and that's the problem with social media, though, is that it, well, yeah, and that's the problem with social media is that it is so much comparison. And you have people who set up photos and you see, you know, the type of posts that a lot of people post are they're with a big group and it makes people feel like, you know, if you don't have many friends, it might, it does, I think, increase the, the feeling of loneliness to see what's going on on social media. Everyone is kind of staged and there isn't any sort of like meaningful, at least connection on, on social media in my view. But I agree with you. I, I think social media is definitely a big part of this, but there's also other issues. Like you said, I mean, it's not like, I guess the issues that our generation are facing are, are, are bad. You know, you have gun uh, violence, you have climate change, but I, and Michelle made this point, which is you also have other generations who also face some really bad problems. And yesterday we were talking about how your generation feared nuclear annihilation. And um, yeah. there's also Vietnam War. And so I think every generation feels the political problem. But I think now it's just there, there's one and there's so much. And then also, I think with social media, I think it really does put young people in um, a really kind of bad situation where you're constantly comparing yourself to other people and and like like you said i mean i find that the people that parents especially have a really important role the, the, my friends who are forced to put their phones away during dinner don't put, don't pull their phones out when i'm talking to them over dinner it's the it's the people who usually um they're not required to put their phones away during dinner that they feel comfortable taking their phone out when i'm with them and sometimes i'm like well okay what's the point of me being with you if you're on your phone so i i i try not to be you know too um outspoken about it but it is kind of when you're out with dinner with someone out you know put away your phone and um parents i think have a big responsibility to enforce that and um i agree with you i think there should be steps that um you know at a certain age you don't have a phone with apps but hopefully also social media companies can can have a role in this and blocking certain types of maybe content or or footage from being shown to a certain audience um, I think I think social media companies have a big role, but I, I think in terms of just what I'm seeing, it, it phones do seem to at least hinder um, meaningful conversation. And, um, and we've talked about this before, where texting now is seen as a way of talking, which right. is not. And so that's that's also an issue, which I which is like, you know what is replacing it. A conversation I had when I was with my goddaughter and her children. Yes, and, yes. Um, so, someone came up to her and said, oh, I just talked to your son. And she said, <laughs> you talked to my son? He said, well, yeah, we were texting. Uh, and we all laughed because texting <laughs> is not having a conversation. It's not a, it's yeah. not the same thing. But, but to your generation, texting yeah, is yeah. a conversation. And, um, I, you know, we'd, I'd love to hear from your generation about, what they think of this issue, both in terms of what is the cause of the increased depression that your generation yeah, yeah. is suffering, and what is the solution? 
And do you think parents need to set parameters? Do you, what, what's the answer? I'd love to hear more on this. It's a fascinating, interesting, and important discussion. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Well, we'll yeah. definitely have on... Sorry, you were, you were saying? No, I'm just saying we need to solve the depression of your generation. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, if, if phones really are the thing, hopefully we can set up guardrails so that future generations don't fall apart. Because I can tell you, people are using phones and iPads and, and electronics starting at a younger age, and it's terrifying to me, at least. I mean, I got a phone when I was, I think, 14 or 15. Mm. I'm now seeing people at restaurants, parents of people with four-year-olds, they put up an iPad, and that's how they... You know, yeah. keep their children from not not <laughs> uh, making any noise, and that to me is terrifying. They're starting to use electronics at like little tiny tiny ages, and um, so it's it's not getting better at least the electronic use. But we'll have on many. Um, well, well, we'll have on some psychologists and also some people who can talk about this because it's re a really interesting and important topic um, we think, and something that isn't getting much attention. So um, stay tuned for that, and stay tuned for episodes next week and the week after, and every week after that we have on Maxwell Frost next week, who um, is a really amazing member of uh, Congress. He's a Gen Zer. can talk about some of the issues that we talked about today. Um, and then um, we'll, we'll be back every week after that. So be sure to like and subscribe to um, youtube.com uh, slash Politicon so you don't miss an episode of iGen Politics. And also wherever you follow your podcast, you can um, subscribe and follow us there. So leave us a five-star review and rating if you follow us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us tremendously. Um, and we will see you again next week. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of iGen Politics.